and friend Shelly. Hi, Pamela. Where are we going today is my question. <laughs> That's a great question. Yeah. And we also have another special guest with us. Back by popular demand, we have one of the two lawyers I trust, Rich, with us again. Hi. Hi, Rich. Glad you're here. Welcome, welcome. We like to have Rich here because he raises the IQ. Yeah. When he comes. Uh huh. So. And he's always so calm. (laughs) He is so calm. Yeah. A lot like us, but different. Yes, a lot like us, but really different. (laughs) So, probably everyone has read these somewhere, but I came across these the other day and it was so funny that I thought I need to include a couple of these. Okay. Before we get into our episode each time. There, you know how they'll like take actual like court transcript excerpts and they'll share it with people because it's so funny what yes, people uh-huh. say. That's what this is. These are true things that have happened in court. So but they're not tied the to Jeremy. Thing, no, this is not okay. tied to Jeremy. We just want to clarify. Okay. <laughs> yeah. This is not Jeremy. Okay. So the attorney asks, what was the first thing your husband said to you that morning? Witness. He said, where am I, Kathy? Attorney, and why did that upset you? Witness, my name is Susan. Oh. <laughs> well, that and might be a little bit upsetting. You're it a, would be a little yeah, upsetting. You're headed to and the then, desert, husband. <laughs> yeah, you're, you'll find your stuff just outside the window yeah, here. exactly. This one may be my favorite. Attorney, are you sexually active? Witness, no, I just lie there. Oh, <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so, okay. anyway, where are we and what? Uh, we're actually wrapping things up. We only have a, a couple, couple more to go. Okay. And then I have a huge surprise for everyone that you, no one is going to want to miss. So okay. I'm not going to tell you what it is yet because okay. it's a surprise. I love surprises. So, this episode is so crazy. Like, we're going to get into, remember the beginning when we first started recording? Now you're going to learn where the origin came from all the crazy rumors about buried gold, right, buried money. Right, okay. You're going to finally learn about where that all came from. Okay. Yay. Today we're going to talk about the receiver and the receivership and the FTC case and how that all came down. Okay. So when the government comes in and they think they've changed things around, right, Rich? Yeah, the receivership laws changed a bit in the last little while. Okay. But before they changed, sadly, they came in and took all of Jeremy's assets. They put it in a receivership. And the purpose of that is to to make victims whole. Because the FTC, of course, when they're taking this stuff, their argument is that this person has taken money from people right and lawfully wrongly and so their job is to make the world a better place by getting their money back okay selling them and and making people whole getting their money back okay we've said multiple times there were no victims in fact we were not allowed to say that in trial because that would be a lot harder for them to win yeah yeah right which is crazy because if he did have victims it surely would have been brought up it's interesting that oh, there are absolutely. no victims and you can't bring that up. That's weird. Okay, yeah. anyway. It just seems totally wrong to me. Yeah, yeah. But that was separate a little bit from the receivership itself, wasn't it? And that that was through a motion in limine. Yes, that was separate. You're right. Yeah. So that's not but, always a function yet, of it, uh, receivership. That's true, okay. but I do think they are connected. 
They, yeah. Well, for sure they're connected. Because you can have a receivership without fraudulent activity, like uh, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation can take possession of a bank if it's struggling and has lost money. And the FDIC then acts as a receiver for that bank's reorganization, acts oh, okay. to the benefit of the depositors and so on. Okay. So receivers do have a very useful function in some areas. Yeah. Okay. For example, I was a receiver of a gold mining company where the shareholders couldn't decide on how to manage the company. The judge appointed me to take the place of the president who was, oh, okay. he'd actually gone a little bit nuts and okay. uh, couldn't effectively run the company. Interesting. Okay. So the shareholders then asked for the president to be replaced and the company be operated under court supervision. And that's basically what a receiver does. Okay. So the FTC had taken all Jeremy's assets and the receiver, we did the last episode about that guy. His name's Gary Karras. And I joke that Gary, his law license is a license to steal. Mm-hmm. I joke about that because the government, like imagine there's like this guy that has millions of dollars and you come in and you take tens of millions of his money. Mm-hmm. In what setting could you do that and not get in trouble yeah. if you're... A lawyer who's a court-appointed receiver. Okay. So they used Gary Karras for this. And Gary, as his job was to take all the assets, to sell them, get the most out of them. Remember, that was an issue in the last episode because right. he was not following that policy on that. And Rich cleaned his clock on uh-huh. that. Okay. I have a question for Rich. <laughs> um, Rich, when someone is appointed to be a receiver, is it always appointed by a judge? Yes, it has to be a judicial appointment. That's one of the most basic requirements of a receivership, that it works under judicial administration. Okay. So a judge actually presides over the receivership. Okay. And then how is the receiver paid? Was he paid from Jeremy's money? Yes. There, you have uh, two parts. The receiver is paid, and, and that compensation has to be approved by the judge. Okay. And the attorneys for the receiver are paid as well. And those payments also have to be approved by the judge who presides over the receivership. Okay. All right. And that's why, you know, in that last episode, when we told the story about when Rich went to Vegas and, and uh, went yeah, to court in that case, remember, I was so worried. I was like, Oh my gosh, Gary wanted Rich to be held in contempt of court. Right. And $17,000. Right. And I was so happy at the end that we, we didn't have to pay Gary's fees. Well, that was really only a victory for Rich. It's not a victory for Jeremy because Gary just took his fees out of the receivership. He still got paid. Yeah. Jeremy still paid him. Right. It was just a matter of whether Rich paid or Jeremy paid. And for us, we were just kind of happier that it was Jeremy's money that they were taking it out of instead of my credit card. So it's kind of like when your business ends up in a receivership, you lose control over that and you're hoping whoever is appointed is honest and will manage the money to keep your business going until it all kind of shakes out, right? So, okay, so the money that he was taking from as the receiver from the receivership, was he doing an honest job or is that up to speculation? Well, everything he did, he did with court approval. Okay. And, okay. you know, I guess 
in a sense, that's the protection that the beneficiaries of the receivership ha have. Okay. Uh, it's almost like a trust where it's, it okay. becomes very much like a fiduciary duty <clears throat> that the receiver then owes a duty to behave honestly to the stakeholders in the receivership. It might be a corporation and it might be the shareholders then who ask for the receivership or it could be the creditors of a company. Okay. But there are different ways that a receiver can be appointed by a court or the receivership justified. Okay. So in this case, Gary was making a lot of money doing this. Yeah. There are no victims to pay back. What was interesting to me was that the FTC, the woman in the FTC that had done this had appointed Gary not just on one case, but on another case. And in that other case, this was after Jeremy's case. So I started to not really like Gary Karras. He had all the assets. Remember when I said there's a hard drive that has all yes. of the missing recordings? Uh -huh. That's Gary That's in his position realm of responsibility. Okay. Yep. Right. So the receiver had possession of all of that. The hard drive. Remember, there's a hard drive. Jeremy had like over 200 recordings, some of Senator Harry Reid. Yes. With him, uh -huh. some with John Swallow, the attorney general, uh, Richard Rawl, the guy from Czech City that told him how to do all the payoff, Harry Reid. And that hard drive was missing. So now, like there was a time when I called Gary and I have an app on my phone that records every phone call that comes in or out, right? I call Gary, I'm saying, I need access to all of the, this evidence that you seized. And he was saying, oh, we don't have anything like that. What? Are you kidding? I had information. Brian Ross from ABC, like national news, ABC, Brian Ross was doing a story on this whole case with Jeremy and Harry, Senator Reid. Gary Karras, the receiver, had allowed his people to go in there. And they couldn't find the hard drive. Like, they went, they searched it and could not find that hard drive. Uh -huh. And when they were there, they saw that the lead prosecutor, Brett Ward, had signed in, because you have to sign in to go in or out, because it's a chain of custody thing. Brett Ward, the lead prosecutor, had been there not once, not twice, but three times. You're kidding. And now I'm asking Gary, I want to go there and go through it. And he made up some story like, oh... You have everything you need. You can get it from the prosecutor. You can ask the judge, which is like so crazy. So I thought, oh, great. I've got this recorded. I gave it to number two and said, hey, go for it. Like, go, go get him. Here's when, you know, I say all the time, our system only works when everyone does their part. Right. Number two didn't do anything about it. He never even asked for it. He never brought it up to the judge or anyone. Not that it would have made a difference in this case. It likely wouldn't have, but it should have. Right. It should have. So let me show you the difference. Troy Rawlings, the prosecutor, Davis County prosecutor, that was prosecuting the other attorney general in Utah, Mark Shirtliff, that was involved in all this, Troy had asked the judge in prosecuting Shirtliff please, I need to be able to access all of the evidence that the feds have seized so that I can share that with the feds. Right. And the feds denied it. Troy was asking the judge to force the feds to make them do it, and the judge wouldn't do it. And it is such a crucial piece of the justice system 
of our process to be able to see the evidence that they're charging you with. And because they wouldn't release that, it was four terabytes of evidence that they wouldn't release to Troy. And Troy knew that Shirtliff had a good defense lawyer and his lawyer was going to fight saying, hey, you can't proceed if you won't give us all the evidence that you have. So Troy had to dismiss that case. That's the right way to do things. Right. This is the wrong way. Once again, there's another way that Jeremy should have. Shirtliff got dismissed based on that. The former attorney general, his case was dismissed and done. But not Jeremy because he didn't have someone fighting for him. Everyone has to do their part. Who has it? And so when I say I need to go and see that, he made up all these reasons why I didn't have a right to go search for that hard drive. Okay. You know, now I absolutely believe that hard drive was destroyed long, long before it was ever put in. I don't think it was ever even put in with everything else. Okay. At the time, I was hopeful that it was. Yeah. And I just, it but was it just makes more me. sense that it would be missing or damaged. Or- yeah. So Gary had paid himself. And what do you do? Is he's overseeing this because it's Jeremy's money? They would send like a quarterly statement to Jeremy and his wife, Sharla. Okay. Explaining, here's a bill for my fees. And the bill for his fees was no small bill. It was like hundreds of thousands of dollars for him to oversee it. Okay. My question then is, if there were no parties that had been injured, why was he selling stuff off and trying to manage money that shouldn't have gone anywhere. Why was he doing that then? The injury to a party is kind of a threshold question. And as I remember the first order creating the receivership, they alleged, the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, alleged that Jeremy and his affiliated companies were engaged in a pattern of fraudulent activity on the internet. That is selling products under fraudulent terms or selling non-existent products. They didn't say specifically, except in one or two cases, they had an idea and they alleged that. And I don't know that they ever really proved that anyone had been defrauded. But I just have in front of me now the original order pointing the receiver. They make a lot of assumptions when the Federal Trade Commission as an agency of the federal government comes in and says, we've found fraudulent behavior. That carries a lot of weight with a judge because these folks are presumably dealing honestly and in the best interest of the people they're supposed to be protecting. Yeah, you're hoping, right? Uh, Yeah. And I'm just reading here from one of the findings that this judge made was that the commission's complaint states a claim upon which relief may be granted under a certain federal law. Okay. It doesn't say that it's, the allegations are true, but it states a claim that may be granted. It's, it's basically what the FTC was organized to do, to, to govern the ethics of doing business. Okay. And if you find somebody's not behaving ethically, we all have a vested interest in, in trusting that the merchants we're dealing with are dealing with us honestly. True. So, you know, it's a good purpose. Right. And so I think a judge generally would be predisposed if if we say we have good evidence that something's going on here that shouldn't be going on the judge is going to listen to that if a federal government agent comes and tells them that okay in this case here's the bottom line with this gary and his law firm ended up paying themselves over 20 million dollars you're kidding no 
20 million. 20 million dollars to not give money to victims. To me, this just seems completely wrong. To me, it seems like highway robbery. Yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. It seems to me now Jeremy might be the victim. Yeah, the process is more complicated than that. Because before Gary Karras and his law firm, now it's not just him. He was with a, a very large and very prominent law firm. And at one time, one of the firm he was representing there, I believe, had more than a thousand lawyers in it. I mean, it's not just your typical lawyer practicing in a one office right. firm. No, this right. was a big, this was big a, deal. This, this was a huge... That doesn't make it right. No, I'm not saying it makes it right. But I'm telling you, it's not just one person right. who's doing this. Right. Yeah. So it's not right, though. The purpose of a law firm is to make money for the lawyers who own it. And right? they did very well at that. Yeah, I'll say. <laughs> it doesn't sit well with me. I don't think it's fair. Here's the problem. Here's the reason. When I talk about number six and I say I'm not happy about number six, uh -huh. here's why. Attorney number six came in. Remember, number six had said for years, we're going to fight the FTC and we're going to win because nobody ever takes them to trial. People just settle all the time. Then Jeremy's criminal case we lost on the eight counts, although he was found not guilty of anything around right. fraud. Right. All we got were the false statements to a bank. We thought it was going to be minimal. They hammered us like right. nothing I'd ever seen before. So he wanted number six to help him with that. Jeremy had promised number six. Now, remember, the FTC had seized thousands, not thousands, millions of dollars right. and assets worth millions. So, he said, look, if, yeah, if you can handle the FTC case for me and six said oh yeah I know and we can win we're gonna win this and when he did that he would get that money back or at least a whole bunch of it right, right so right. Jeremy did he had made a deal with number six that if, if you do that I will pay you two million dollars that's a very hefty fee mm -hmm. so then when a criminal case was done and we wanted to appeal it so to appeal it he had to have a lawyer to appeal it so he asked Number six, can you do appeals? Number six said, I do a lot of appellate work and I've won almost every case I've ever appealed okay. at the 10th Circuit. Okay, so I'm like, that's great. I'm glad to hear this. And then as Jeremy was waiting for sentencing, number six starts telling him, you know what? We better just settle the FTC case and not take it to trial. Wait, what? what? Why? Yeah, then why? why? Yeah. You have to lose. Seriously, what would he have to lose? Nothing. If he, he has nothing to lose. No. He has everything to gain. Yeah. Even if he only wins, like, okay, you get a house back. Yeah. Or even, yeah, any, yeah, any percentage of his money back. So I was saying, Jeremy, no, 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 don't. Number six said, we need to settle with the FTC. And I was so opposed to that because why the hell would you settle with them? When you don't have they anything have, to lose. Yeah. There's nothing to lose. Yeah. If you lose, you're right where you are right now. Right. Except Jeremy had been so, we were, he was so tired um, mentally, physically. Right. Beat emotionally. out. Yeah. And he was in jail. And remember, I'd taken the colored pens and stuff to him. And uh -huh. then number six said we get them in trouble, which was not true. Right. I mean, he was saying, how can I even, like, I can't even prepare in here. And he had been his own lawyer. That's one of the real problems that existed back then with receiverships. Uh, one of the first things that the judge did when he created the receivership is freeze all of Jeremy's assets. Okay. 
and freeze all the assets that were part of the affiliated companies. What that means is they don't have control over them. No longer did Jeremy or any of the others have any control over right. the assets. Now think for a second, I can't go out and hire a lawyer. No. Yeah. Now think about that for a second. Yeah. If that yeah. happened, let's say that every time someone uh, was accused of a crime in the United States, we froze their assets mm -hmm. so that they couldn't hire a lawyer to defend them. The whole country would be in uproar. Right. I think about how outrageous right. that is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, partway towards the end of this case, the uh, Supreme Court actually declared that to be unconstitutional. But oh, at the good. time this but receivership it didn't help was him. Formed, yeah. Right. At the time this receivership was formed, that law was still extant. It, gotcha. It still applied. Yeah. Jeremy could not hire a lawyer and pay a lawyer because he had no money. Everything he owned Every, was frozen. Right. So he had to be able to negotiate a crazy deal like this. Right. So right. I didn't know six until like at the end there, at the end of trial afterwards. And then my experience wasn't great. And then six starts saying, you need to settle with the FTC. And I'm really, really not impressed. Like, why? Yeah, why, why is she? Mm -hmm. All I've heard is for years how amazing number six is. And now, now we're supposed to settle and say that that's okay. I, yeah. It just, but talking with Jeremy, I got it. Like he, is, he was so tired. And he said, seriously, I'm in a jail cell. How can I prepare for a big trial, I can't. Yeah. So number six started negotiating with the FTC to settle. And the next thing I learned from Jeremy is, now remember number six is, had already been paid like $350,000. Number six got paid at the time Jeremy had a house that he could deed to okay. number six. Okay. So that was like kind of a down payment. That was 350,000 to go towards 2 million. Uh -huh. <laughs> right. So when they and they're trying to negotiate with the FTC. Six comes back and says, okay, here's what we'll do. You sign off and say that you'll walk away from all of your assets and you won't fight them. You won't even ask for anything. You just say, all my millions, everything, you so can have wrong. it. Yeah. And I will never make a claim on it. And then they'll give us back $700,000. And then I can use that 700000 towards appealing your criminal charge. Ridic well, that's ridiculous. Thank you. That's I thought so too. And I did was he like, agree to that? And Jeremy was saying, I'm going to agree to it. And I said, oh, please. Like I was begging him, please don't agree to that. Please don't agree. Yeah. And I said, Jeremy, like, you can how could you agree to that? And he said, look, I owe number six, $2 million. Cause I promised $2 million. If they had a deal, if that number six attorney was going to take the FTC to court, right? Thank you. Thank you for catching that. Yeah. That's what I said. Wait a minute. You guys had a, a deal. Six was going to take the FTC case to trial. And when they win, because they said they would win. They were so no good at it. Mm -hmm. They were so good at it that then you would pay six, $2 million. Right. But now six is saying, no, we are not going to court. So the deal should be off. I'm going to take all of your settlement yeah. for my fee. Yeah. I think personally, it's, it's so wrong with me. I thought that that person should be disbarred for that. I really did. Yeah, I that's thought, not right. Wrong. 
Yeah. To negotiate a fee that you take for yourself, I know that Rich would never do that. No. I, the lawyers that I know and love, yeah, that just, it just doesn't feel right to me on any level. No. And remember when we did the comment part of the judge? Yeah. Karen SP was so mad about it, uh, the comment person. And then Karen SP sent an email to Tom Harvey and said, how can you not do a story? You need to do a story about how attorney number six just took $700,000 from the FTC case to defend Jeremy on the appeal to defend Jeremy. And that money's going straight to number six. It's not even passing through no. Jeremy Johnson's family's hands. This is so wrong. Even Karen SP thought that. And here's what's interesting. Here's another argument with the Karen SP stuff, being someone on the inside. At that time, I talked to Charlotte about it, Jeremy's wife. She didn't even know that that was happening. So Karen SP had more information right. than Jeremy. Than the family. That's not right. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's not right at all. It's got which to makes be someone on the inside. Yeah. Someone on the inside. So I said, Jeremy, wait a minute. If number six isn't doing a trial, then they don't get $2 million. Right. I, right. He said, but I promised. And I said, I know you promised. She, and I love that you have integrity. But right. Number six promised to go to trial. And neither one of you kept your promise. Six promised a trial. You promised money. None of it happened. So scratch all of it. Start over. And renegotiate. Yeah. Start over again. Yeah. And Jeremy's like, no, no, I can't do it. I'm just going to take the deal. It broke my heart. Yeah. Because I was like, oh, you have nothing to lose. But I get it. I think if it had happened a year later. And like Jeremy had been arguing, trying to get the FTC to do it before the criminal case. Just in case this happened right right and of course they wanted a delay in case sure. it happened sure so sure. and of course they won yeah. that little battle so i started doing all this research to find out if number six was telling the truth about winning every appeal that number six had done at the 10th circuit right and i don't believe that though because if that really were true then number six would have pushed through on that thank you yeah exactly that it doesn't make any sense. sense yeah and I'm really pleased, like everyone listening, do not think I am not being harsh on Jeremy at all. No, I'm really not. No, no, no. I get it's, where he was. I get where he was. Well, the bottom line is if your attorney, the one you're hiring to take you through that situation is saying, listen, it's not going to work. You want to put your faith in number six attorney. Yes. Yes. And remember, number six had been awarded attorney of the year. Yeah. Whatever. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Gosh. Yeah. Okay, Rich, I have a question for you. Yeah. How hard is it to get your company out of a receivership? Like, what would Jeremy have to do to get his company back out of the receivership? Or does he have any power to get it out of a receivership? Oh, he would have to go back and say, there is no evidence. And he'd have to prove that there was no pattern of illegal conduct, say. Okay. And prove by a preponderance of evidence. and. Now that you've got his money frozen, how's he going to do that? Yeah, okay. So it, it makes it really hard. The good news is that finally some people saw that this really was not a very equitable way of managing an enterprise in the United States. Right. And partway through Jeremy's case, there was that judgment by the Supreme Court where they said, if the FTC successfully appoints a receiver, they have to leave enough assets for that entity to defend itself. Oh, good. Okay. But again, it didn't help Jeremy. It right. didn't help Jeremy. It okay. happened yeah. during his case. Okay. But like, 
on those lines, here's something really cool. Another case came up. Oh, this one actually happened a year before Jeremy's trial. Okay. But here's the difference. This one happened in Salt Lake and with a different judge. So the similar situation, the same woman from the FTC came in and she she was asking to appoint Gary Karras, the same receiver in his company, to take over Caesar Company. Okay. And Tom Harvey did an article about that. I'm just showing how on so many levels things just, it was like this perfect storm. And I could say perfect storm in a horrible way for Jeremy. Right. Cause because everything that could happen fell against him. The judge didn't like right. him. They took all of his money. It just seems like it just kept yeah. dogpiling everything. him. It did. It was such a dogpile. This case happened a year, like I say, a year and a half before Jeremy's trial. Here's Tom's article on it from the Salt Lake Tribune. Okay. It says a federal judge on Thursday turned down a request by federal regulators to take over a string of Utah companies that had been accused of defrauding U.S. consumers out of millions of dollars. And here's the difference. The judge, in this case, U.S. District Judge D. Benson. You will hear about Judge Benson in our next episode. Okay. Because we come in contact with him later. U.S. federal judge, Judge D. Benson, said he wasn't persuaded by arguments from the FTC that all assets should be frozen and a receiver appointed to take over the company. And Benson made that decision from the bench at the end of a court hearing. Here's what I loved. Benson is quoted as saying, it might be fraud. It might not be. It can be sorted out at trial. And then he indicated that he didn't accept the FTC argument that the business operated that how they operated was fraud. That's the way it should have happened. Right, right. Like the judge had just accepted, like Rich read from the findings saying the judge accepted that yeah. what the FTC did. In this case, the judge didn't accept it. Exactly. Right, That's right. exactly the way the system should work. That's how the system should work. Yeah. And then there was another case that Judge Benson, that the same, same woman from the FTC came in and it appointed Gary Karras with the same law firm. Judge Benson had approved, like carefully told them, okay, I will approve taking over a company. And Gary Karras's bills in the first quarter were like $300,000. Like it was a lot of money. Okay. And they had to have the judge approve those fees. Yeah. And Judge Benson refused to pay the fees. And then he said, I'm not going to allow it. I'm not going to pay those fees. And then he said, if the FTC wants to pay them, let the FTC pay them out of their money. Yeah. <laughs> or out of Jeremy's because they're still holding his money. Exactly. That's crazy. Exactly. Yeah. So when I say that Gary and his firm made over $20 million. Ridiculous. I have heard. Yeah. It is so ridiculous. And I we have learned that the FTC actually kind of by the end, kind of when they realized how much Gary had made on this oh, in yeah? his firm. Uh-huh. That they were unhappy because oh, there wasn't shocker. very much money. Really? <laughs> Sucks to be you. Yeah, that's ridiculous. So, even after Jeremy's trial, Jeremy and Sharla were still getting invoices from Gary Karras, quarterly invoices about what he was doing. And I was like, what in the hell? Are you kidding me? Yeah, it's and ridiculous. It for what? Yeah. For what? Yeah. How, I don't even get this. How? And what he was doing, okay, remember... Fake Jesus. Okay. Uh-huh. It like all this all circles back. Everyone, I'm so glad people have been following along because <laughs> this stuff, it's so complex and there's so much. But now that you follow along, I love that I can just share something and you get it. Yeah. 
I remember when I said before, there were at the very beginning, I said, man, this case is so crazy. There are stories about like buried gold. Okay. There were rumors all over the place about it. All those rumors about the buried gold, fake Jesus. Remember me telling you that Jason, who was fake Jesus, Jason had actually been a friend of Jeremy's, a very good friend. And when Jeremy was making all that money, he had he had gold bars, silver bars. He had all that money. Remember, he was going to take a truckload of silver bars to Harry Reid to pay him. Yeah. And then they were like, who the hell has silver? Like, why do you have yeah. silver bars? <laughs> we don't want <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Idiot. For a time, he had all these gold bars and he had them at his house. And Jeremy had his wife and two little girls living at the house. And he got worried. His name was getting out there. And sure. He had done Haiti stuff. And we'll talk about that soon. But when he had done all this, these things and his name was out there, he started getting worried that some crazy person would come and harm his wife and children for Right, right. Gold. Try to rob him or, or something. Yeah. Yes. And so his remedy for that was to take the person with the biggest mouth that he knows that can't keep a secret and take them with him to go bury some gold up in the mountains so that they know I don't have gold in my house anymore. Oh, it's buried. Okay. So he took Jason Jesus, Jason fake Jesus with him. Okay. Not and he didn't tell Jason like I'm sure he didn't tell him like, hey, I want you to tell everyone about this. He just knew Jason. Yeah, would, would blab. He can't keep his mouth shut. <laughs> yeah. He was, he was we all sick. have some of those friends. Yep. Yes, we do. So Jeremy took the gold bars that he had and put them in his helicopter with Jason, and they flew up above the mountains of St. George. Those of you that don't know, if you look up Zion's Canyon. Boy, do we have mountains. Yes, like, we do. Uh-huh. Beautiful, like world-class hiking stuff. Yep, national parks. Yes, and they went up in the mountains, and Jeremy buried gold bars up there. And years later, when I'm going through, and I'm reading all these things, we're preparing for court, and one day I said, Jeremy, seriously, there must be some truth to these gold bar stories, because there are so many rumors, there must be some truth to it. And he started laughing, he said, yeah. There is. And then he told me that the stories, like, this is what I did. About fake Jesus. Yeah, I don't have this in my house anymore. Don't, so don't rub my house. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> so after the trial's all over, it, it, and I said, oh, please. I said, you know what, Jeremy, you don't have to tell me. But I hope, hope, hope for your sake that you have some of that buried and you can go get it. So I hope you have something buried somewhere that will. And he said, I wish I did, but I was so convinced that I was right and that I would be found innocent that when they came in and seized everything, all my assets, froze my bank accounts, I still had payroll to meet with my employees. Sure. And I was so convinced that that we were just going to get past this and everything would still be functioning. Yeah, go back to normal. Yeah, that things would get my life back. I went and got those gold bars and used it to pay payroll. I was oh. like, oh, crap. Are okay. you? And he's like, I wish, I wish that I hadn't done that, but I really was so optimistic. I thought this will be short term. Yeah. He yeah. had no idea that this would go for years. Like and, ruin, and just ruin his life, basically. Yeah. Yes. So you fast forward to the end of trial, the conviction, the sentencing, and then he's going to prison. Jeremy's in prison. And they're still getting bills from 
the receiver from Gary Karras. I yeah. said, what in the world? You get, Like, they've already seized all your assets. They've seized all your yeah, stash, everything. What? How? What could... What could he be doing? Right. And Gary had to have something and he'd have to describe it, but he'd put on the invoice that they were looking for hidden assets. Sure. And and here's how he did it. He got Jamie Hipwell from the IRS. That was the equivalent of me on the government side. Yeah. Jamie Hipwell spent a lot of time helping him look for hidden assets. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) here's the funniest part to me. Fake Jesus. No kidding. No kidding. Because he's the guy, he said, I know he's got this gold hidden. Buried gold. Yeah. And Jason, fake Jesus, was bragging to people around Southern Utah saying, guess what? I'm helping the receiver find these gold bars. I'm helping him recover. And if I find them, if I show them where the gold bars are, then they're going to let me keep 10% of the money. I'll get a finder's fee. Yeah, sure. Well, he probably would have. Well, here's what's hilarious. If you know, think about this. Oh, wait, you you would be an accessory. Why would you go tell the government and only get 10% of it? Why not just go pick up the gold bars yourself? And keep it, yeah. (laughs) Come on. Oh my gosh. So I thought that was really funny. He thought yeah. he was being so helpful. Yeah. Wouldn't but, he be considered an accessory to hidden money? No, oh. they would give him immunity if he'd helped them okay. find it. But okay. they never did because, it was already like gone. I say, it was, mm-hmm. it was already gone. I just thought all of this was so fascinating. Did you want to talk about what they actually did find in terms of violations that somebody like the damages they were able to document were like $10 or something like that. I'm going to have to clear it, like verify this, but I think I know for sure, like the whole case started over a $1 credit card charge. Like, and they didn't disclose it to us for a long, long time. It took years for us to figure that out. Here's something that we learned later. They had an FTC agent that actually went to iWorks to Jeremy's company's website and purchased a product, got the product, And then said, I don't want it anymore. And they called and said, I don't want this anymore. I want a refund. And I I don't want any more charges on my card. Because it was a monthly fee to have access to that website. And everything worked perfectly. He called. He got a refund. They stopped the charge on the card from reoccurring. Uh They hid all of that from us. We actually didn't. That would have really worked to his benefit. Tom Harvey found that. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, wow. he found that after the fact, after the trial even. Wow. That just made me sick. Yeah. Like, yeah. are you guys kidding? You yeah. even knew that the company was working exactly as they stated they yeah. would, were working. And legally. Mm-hmm. And legally. Like, this is, it's just so disheartening. Yeah. Yeah, and I think if the federal government learned anything through this whole uh, Federal Trade Commission Act, it, it is that this much power in the hands of people who, on the hands of anyone, right, is right. Totally going to lead to some pretty oppressive enforcement actions. Yeah. And my understanding was that the only damages that were ever proved, now when I say damages, that means somebody alleged that they got a product that was not what it was supposed to be. Sure. And if they, if they then complain and they get their money back, mm-hmm. Nobody's been harmed. Right. right, right. But if they could show that there's a pattern of that where people all over the country 
are being sold a bill of goods and the company's not doing anything to, to right the wrong, right? then you've got a real problem. But it doesn't seem like that was the procedure that was being used here. No. They would use one or two very small instances and claim that that must be a pattern that's here. So let's shut this company down. And I had an experience roughly similar to this uh, a couple of years ago, where the same cast of characters from the Federal Trade Commission were uh, had come to Utah to shut down a, a company that was engaging in some activities they thought were illegal. And before that case was over, the Supreme Court had decided that the FTC's power had been vastly overreached. Oh, in good. Cases. I think that was kind of the end of this era where we had a law that I think it's in its intention was very good to regulate the integrity of business activities. But when you give power to people to earn millions and millions of dollars just to stir the pot yeah, and to not do right. good for someone, not That's to not get right. rid of any yeah. bad procedure, but merely to enrich the people who are signed on to play the game. Sure. Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. some of my colleagues are part of that, that it becomes, how do we generate the most legal fees from an enterprise? And yeah. that is why I say all the time that 99% of your colleagues give the rest of you a bad name. <laughs> yeah, I've never laughed at that, and I'm not going to today. <laughs> but it's true. You know, you worry about who you can trust. The more stuff like this that comes out, it makes you second guess. All of a sudden, you're like, wait a minute, how well... You know, do I know them? How well will they take care of right. me? That kind of a thing. Yeah. And that is my PI tip of the day. If you've got a lawyer in a civil suit, a criminal case, whatever it is, pay attention that they are really looking out for your best interests. Right. Number six. Remember, number six had said, oh, I'm so good. I I win all my appellate cases. So after number six yeah, pressured him to, to do the settlement and to walk away from all of his assets, which broke my heart. I didn't like it. It didn't feel right to me. So then I looked up the cases that I knew number six had had at the 10th circuit. And out of five cases, two of them had good outcomes. Wow. Two for five. That doesn't sound like almost everyone to me. Right. Right. And you know, I don't expect perfection. I just, but at least just attempt it. Why don't you try? I, yeah. I, I, yeah. I expect honesty. Yeah. Like you don't have to be perfect about what you're doing, but be honest about, okay, I've done this and this and this. So the appeal is coming up. We're going to be talking about what happened on that, how okay. that all played out. And then we'll be done with all the hard stuff. And then we're going to do it. It's, I got some huge surprises for everyone at the end. It's going to be super fun. So thank you all for hanging in on all this journey. Thanks for listening to Pamela.